this is a new Ukraine. This is a European Ukraine. Uh, you know, people under the age of 31 have no memory of the Soviet Union, which is a good thing. Hello, everybody. I am Viktor Kovalenko from the United States, and this is my audio podcast, Ukraine Decoded. As a former Ukrainian journalist and veteran, I organize expert discussions about the ongoing Russian war against Ukraine. With me today is Brian Mefford. He is a communications pro who advised Ukrainian presidents like Viktor Yushchenko and U.S. lawmakers like the late John McCain. Formerly, he is an owner of a PR agency and a senior fellow at the think tank Atlantic Council in D.C. But most importantly, Brian Mefford lives in Kyiv for about 23 years and is one of the most influential expats in Ukraine, according to the local newspaper, the Kyiv Post. My initial question to Mr. Mefford is, will Ukraine survive this winter? Well, I think the answer to that is, is yes, that they will survive and they are surviving. And Ukraine has proven itself uh, resilient. I think, you know, people who have lived in Ukraine and who are Ukrainian, uh, if you look back at the last hundred years of famine and war, you could have guessed that Ukrainians would be resilient. I guess the question was, is is this generation still resilient? And I think uh, the answer to that is resounding yes. Uh, Ukraine is is proving itself uh, capable of surviving war, surviving you know uh, infrastructure uh, and electricity outages, blackouts. So uh, the answer is yes. And I think that you know every day that passes this month and next is a day less of winter, and it's, it's getting warmer each day. So. This too shall pass, and Ukraine shall emerge from this stronger and, and ready to go on to victory this later this year. Mr. Mefford, how this Russian war began personally for you? Uh, like everyone else, I was watching the situation deteriorate. There was a hope that, you know, perhaps the Americans are just being uh, too worrisome. Uh, but um, when the President of the United States says to, to leave, like any good American, I wait till he says it three times, and then I, then I follow those directions. So... I was in Kyiv until about February the 13th, and then I went to Lviv on the same day that the American embassy moved to Lviv. Uh, I stayed in Lviv a week. The situation continued to deteriorate, and I went to Poland uh, right before the war started. Uh, the initial days uh, I spent in Warsaw uh, organizing humanitarian and medical aid, as well as evacuations for people who were in danger. We launched a charitable project, humanitarian and medical charitable project called Help Ukraine 22, uh, www.hu22.org. To date, we've been able to to raise and deliver uh, more than $2 million of medical and humanitarian aid to Ukrainians in need. So we were happy that we were able to do that, and we were in a position to do that in spite of the difficulties that we experienced. Can you elaborate a little bit more on how you help those affected by the war? four main elements, actually. It's rescue, relief, resupply, and uh, rebuilding. The first part, relief, is to provide medical and other aid to Ukrainians in need. That's shelter for internally displaced Ukrainians, people who had to move from the east to the west of the country. We try to focus most of our efforts on Ukrainians in Ukraine, uh, simply because there's a lot. The European countries, Poland in particular, are doing a lot already for those who are refugees who have left the country. Uh, so we try to focus on Ukrainians in Ukraine. 
another part of our work is with rescue. And that was particularly a big focus in February and March as we tried to get Ukrainians out of danger and into areas that were much more safe. So basically to get them out of Kharkiv, uh, even Kiev at that time, because Kiev was under siege, the Donbass and other areas. So we were able to help evacuate uh, right around 4,000 Ukrainians in, in total. The third part is resupply, resupply of humanitarian and medical aid. We focus only on humanitarian and medical. We don't do anything, any lethal uh, supplies. Uh, we just try to focus on the humanitarian medical uh, aspect and component. And then, of course, also we've made some grants to other NGOs, Ukrainian NGOs that are doing good work, doing real work. Having lived in Ukraine 23 years, I'm familiar with a lot of these groups and which ones are real and which ones are, are fly by night. And so we were able to partner uh, with some of these reliable Ukrainian NGOs to maximize the effect and, and to help more people. To date, we've partnered with right around 125 uh, NGOs and hospitals and medical clinics all around the country. The final aspect, of course, is rebuilding, uh, because at some point this war will end, hopefully victoriously and, and sooner rather than later. But at some point, we also have to rebuild Ukraine. It's not enough just to, to respond to the evil that's been done, but we need to build a new Ukraine, a, a better Ukraine, and a European Ukraine. So we got to start thinking about that. And that takes shape in terms of very practical things like uh, helping people with PTSD. The trauma that is going to be experienced by Ukrainians is going to be felt for decades. And so and it's going to affect millions of people. So we're already shifting some resources to to help address those needs. And then, of course, there's the other aspects of, you know, rebuilding homes and property and lives and jobs. So that will be the longer term effort. And that's going to last long after the war. You just mentioned rebuilding Ukraine, but I think it is a bit early to think about rebuilding anything because Russia continues to bombard infrastructure and civilian buildings. Is it time or not yet? You're right. And that's why we've, in terms of physical rebuilding, in terms of rebuilding buildings and these sorts of things, that's a secondary priority. Right now, we're talking in terms of rebuilding people's lives and the trauma they've experienced. You know, the victims of the atrocities in Bucha or Mariupol or Izu, they have to start rebuilding their lives uh, one day at a time. And uh, that starts by getting them into a safe, stable place where they can not have to worry about being killed. It's that simple, uh, where they know that they're going to have food and shelter and, and warmth and these sorts of things. So right now we're focusing more on the personal and the, the mental aspects of rebuilding. Uh, at a later date, though, yes, there will after the war, then it's time to do the physical rebuilding, rebuilding of infrastructure and, and uh, homes and these sorts of things. Your opinion about the visit of President Zelensky to the United States in December and its results? So I had the opportunity to visit my parents for Christmas, and I, I saw President Zelensky's uh, speech before Congress in the United States and was able to interact with a lot of you know Americans in, in the Midwest and other places that uh, also paid attention to the visit. I think the short answer is the visit was a great success. And I mean, anytime a foreign president speaks to the Congress, this is a, a rare honor. And, you know, the, there were detractors, of course, and someone, some people didn't like how he dressed and all that. These, these are side issues. These are not important. What's important is he addressed the U.S. Congress. He got a overwhelming bipartisan response. He got a meeting with the president of the United States. These are all wins for Ukraine. I think, too, you know, there's some of the criticism that's now coming towards U.S. assistance towards Ukraine tries to focus on, you know, Zelensky and, they, and this and that. Obviously, Ukraine is bigger than uh, Vladimir Zelensky, although I, I give him credit for having done an, an outstanding job during wartime as president. But what I keep telling Americans is, look, this is about Ukraine, and this is about a country that has been attacked defending itself. 
You don't like Zelensky, that's fine, that's your business. Uh, but you as an American, uh, a country which was, was founded in war and has you know helped numerous countries over the last 200 and some odd years of our existence establish themselves as a democracy and, and a free country, uh, Ukraine is easy in terms of the American mindset. It's, it's very simple. Ukraine has been attacked by an evil power, Russia, and it's, it is as black and white as it's going to get. Not since Nazi Germany in World War II has there been a war which is as black and white for Americans. So, you know, some people are objecting and say it costs too much money and all that. I've addressed those issues with different, you know, Americans that have wanted to engage. But my sense of it is the, the opposition to Ukraine in the United States is mostly due to partisanship. Whenever one president's in power, the other party is always going to be opposed to it and vice versa. You know, when Reagan was president, the Democrats were opposed to helping the Contras in Central America. Now some Republicans are opposed to helping Ukraine because Biden's for it. And so this is an old Washington game. It happens with every presidency. Uh, I'm disappointed that some Republicans are opposing Ukraine aid, but they're still minority and there's still overwhelming support among the American people as well as in the Congress for Ukraine. And that's a good thing. As a communications pro, what is your impression about how Zelensky and his team build communications with the West? I think they're improving for sure. If you look at them pre-war versus where they are now, uh, they're obviously much in much better shape. And part of that has to do with access. I mean, Ukraine has greater access to the levers of government in the United States than they've ever had before. Even in Yushchenko time or Poroshenko time, there was never this much close communication and access. So having that kind of access obviously improves uh, one's skills and capabilities. You know, could they do some things better? Probably so. I'm not going to be one, though, to criticize the Ukrainian government during wartime. But, uh, you know, if, if someone asked me for help one-on-one, -on -one, I, I would obviously help them and give them my thoughts and ideas privately in a way that's constructive and helpful to Ukraine. Early, you were a regional manager at the International Republican Institute. You trained, advised and consulted thousands of political activists and government officials in Eastern Europe and in particular in Ukraine. Do you see your trainees in Ukrainian politics now? Sure. There's there's members of parliament that we work with back in, you know, 2004. And there's members, you know, who are working in different ministries or the cabinet of ministers, secretary to the president. I worked from 1999 to 2009 with the International Republican Institute, headed by Senator John McCain. I traveled to every region of the country, and you know, every almost every second weekend, I was in some region of the country training political activists. And so, inevitably, a lots of those folks are now in different places in the government, and, and some have have done quite well. Time has passed, of course. Of course, I've not worked for IRI directly since 2009, so it's already been 13 years. Uh, but I'm pleased that a lot of those people are still around and and doing active work in the government and, and doing some great things to help build Ukraine. In Ukraine, you own a communications firm, which is called Wooden Horse Strategies. Is it easy to do business there? And the second part of my question, how's your business during the war? The answer is no, but that's the short answer. But I will say this, we're surviving, and that's a great credit to some of our clients because they're invested in Ukraine for the long term. And so when the war started, there were a couple of them in particular that just said, look, we're going to continue working with your company. We understand we're going to get less work from you now because of wartime, and, and a lot of your folks are busy doing humanitarian stuff. But we know we'll get the work from you later, and you guys do good work. So that was a great testimony to the quality of work we're doing, as well as the character of our clients. So 
you know, there's a, a lot of clients that stuck with us through the hard times. Uh, so that's a, that's a big credit to them. You know, I, I'm particularly proud of the fact that despite the war, we've been able to keep our entire staff on salary, on full salary, no cuts. And, uh, you know, we've been able to pay everybody on, on time every month. So that's difficult in peacetime in Ukraine sometimes. But uh, we're, we're, we are blessed and we are grateful uh, to our clients who have stuck with us. My next question is about corruption. It is an issue in the post-Soviet space. Ukraine also suffered from corruption before the war. Is it still an issue? It's a more nuanced question. I don't see the corruption aspects from a business standpoint. Although I would say, you know, pre-war, we built our business on the fact that we're an American company. We, we abide by the laws of the United States. We abide by the laws of Ukraine. Uh, so we hold ourselves perhaps to what would be considered a higher standard than, than maybe some other companies. So we've not had to contend with that, you know, corruption aspect that other maybe some other businesses uh, had to experience. I know in terms of renewing some of my documents we needed for the business, uh, we've been able to get them. It's been a little slower, but nobody's asked for a bribe. I've I've done a lot of border crossings, by the way, of carrying humanitarian supplies in and out. I've probably done 20 different border crossings in the last year, and um, never once has anyone asked me for a bribe. Uh, I also understand as an American, they're going to be less likely to ask me for that. You know, that being said, I think this is an issue that Ukraine's going to have to struggle with this year because uh, particularly American aid is going to be scrutinized very closely and they're going to be looking for that example, that one official who's taking a bribe so that somebody who wants to have a reason to vote against Ukraine can then say, oh, you see this official here in you know Kharkiv or this official in Lviv, he was taking bribes uh, of assistance. The one thing I would also note, though, is, you know, in wartime, when someone's attacking you and trying to kill you and you kill your family, you're not thinking about how to steal weapons or anything like that. You're, you're thinking how to use those weapons to defend yourself. And so I would say from a humanitarian and medical standpoint, in, the, in particular, the early months, you know, February, March, April, uh, even into May, what we were seeing from a humanitarian perspective was that the aid that was given, it was going directly where it needed to go. There was no, you know, skimming off the top or, or anything like that. But that being said, I think Ukraine's going to have a tough year ahead. I think that a lot of the aid's going to be scrutinized and people are going to be looking for examples in the international community in particular of corruption. So it's now more important than ever that Ukraine Ukrainian officials and uh, NGOs, you know, work honestly, work without bribes and just do everything to the book. In 2009, you managed a team advising the first pro-Western president of Ukraine, Viktor Yushchenko. Those were the times of big hopes after the Orange Revolution. Now Ukraine has another pro-Western president, Volodymyr Zelensky, who came to power after the Second Revolution and Russian invasion. My questions are, why didn't Ukraine succeed under Yushchenko as much as it succeeds under Zelensky? Yeah, these are very different times in Ukraine's history. Uh, I always say the Orange Revolution was about Ukraine saying to the world, we're Ukrainian, we're not Russian. Euromaidan was about Ukraine saying, we're European, we're not Eurasian. And now we have a, a hot war. And so it's a very different time. One thing that I will credit Zelensky with is whenever Yushchenko came to power, he had some talented individuals around him, but he did not have a team. Zelensky does have a team. I won't say that all of them are superstars, but they are at least a cohesive team. You know, having a one-party majority gives him some flexibility to really manage the government in a more efficient way. 
Yushinko time, he was always having to depend on three or four factions in parliament, and it was very difficult to get anything done. So the fact that, you know, Zelensky has a, a mono majority gives him a lot more effectiveness in, in terms of managing the country. He does have a team. So I think that's one of the big differences. My next question is somewhat tricky. What do you think? Will the war between Russia and Ukraine end this year? It's not just a question of when the war ends, but how the war ends. And I always use the the analogy of if someone breaks into your house and you know steals 20% of your property, and then they, they come back eight years later and they break in again, and this time you know they abuse your children and rape your wife and steal another 20%. And then you've got a German neighbor who comes in and says, whoa, 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 let's all get along. Just give back, you know, they'll give back like 10% of what they stole and everything's fine now, right? And so sometimes when I see these, particularly the Germans or some European leaders telling Ukraine, well, you got to make peace, you got to make peace. What, what, what are we talking about practically? Um, it has to be a peace that respects Ukraine's borders, that involves reparations for the infrastructure, the lives, the, the wounded, and so forth. These are things that even money cannot adequately cover, but at least it's something that would acknowledge the evil that's been done. So when will the war end? You know, that's a real a difficult question. Obviously, it depends on Ukraine's ability to, uh, one, stop the Russian assaults that continue to come. Russia continues to draft more and more men to throw them into the meat grinder out east. But, you know, it takes bullets to kill those people. Ukraine's going to have to also prove that it can counterattack and take back territory. It did that in Kharkiv. It did that in Kherson. But look, we will see. I anticipate, though, by summer, I think Russia will finally be at a point economically where they can no longer cook the books and they can no longer hide from their people, you know, all the things that are going on. I think they'll face enough domestic pressure by summer that we can see uh, some serious talks, not just as Russia saying now, let's keep everything we've stolen and then, you know, make peace. That's obviously not a, a genuine uh, offer, a sincere offer. So my hope is by summertime and at that point, Ukraine will have basically liberated most of its territory from the Russian occupiers. As an American who lives in Ukraine for a long time, 23 years, what important things about Ukraine would you explain to your fellow Americans? Let's say your three most important messages about modern Ukraine. Uh, number one, Ukrainians are resilient. Yes, they're having a tough time, but it, this is not the old, oh, poor Ukraine. Uh, this is not Ukraine of the 90s. This is a, a tough Ukraine. This is a European Ukraine, and that's a good thing. The second thing is, Uh, in addition to Ukraine, Ukrainians being resilient, is Ukraine is winning. Ukraine is winning this war against all the odds. Yes, they're doing it with American and NATO weaponry. These weapons are, are 30 years ahead of the Russians, at least, if not more. But uh, Ukrainians have proven that they're capable of using them, that they will use them to defend their country. I tell people, you know, in Afghanistan, Afghanistan had Black Hawk helicopters. They had actually better weapons than Ukraine has right now. But they wouldn't fight. They did not fight to defend their territory other than, you know, certain tribes. Uh, but Ukraine is a country, and uh, Ukraine is, is fighting as a country, and it's winning as a country. The third message is, this is a new Ukraine. Ukraine has had its problems in the past. There's no doubt about that. And I think a lot of that is the legacy of the Soviet Union, 70 years of subjugation under communist Russia. If the United States was under communist subjugation for 70 years, we would be a different country too. Thank God we're not. Um, this is a new Ukraine. This is a European Ukraine. Uh, you know, people under the age of 31 have no memory of the Soviet Union, which is a good thing. We are seeing the emergence of a European power. I think you're going to see a shift in power in Europe to Ukraine and Poland and the Baltics. 
Unfortunately, Ukraine's had to achieve this result through defending itself and through bloodshed. But in the long term, this is what will make the nation strong and a power to be respected in Europe for many decades to come. On this optimistic note, I would like to wrap up this episode. Today with me was Brian Mefford from Ukraine. He is a pro in communications and a senior fellow at the think tank Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. Mr. Mefford, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Victor. Good to see you and thanks for the opportunity to join your podcast today. Good to reconnect with you. Thank you for what you're doing. Dear listeners, you can support my podcast by donating to my PayPal at paypal.me slash Mr. Kovalenko. Direct links for donations are also available in the descriptions for every episode. Goodbye and so long.